We come this morning in John chapter 11 to the center, almost the exact mathematical center, it has been noted, of John's gospel. And of course, this is the famous story we just read of Jesus' raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's a story which highlights so many themes in John's gospel that this story has been called the fourth gospel in miniature. Almost everything that John's trying to do in his gospel is done in this story. And we'll make three points. They're there on the back inside page of the bulletin. Death, comfort, resurrection. So, first, death. Of course, we mean, we mean here the death of Lazarus. So, last week we saw the, the end of the Good Shepherd discourse in John 10. After that, there's an attempt to arrest Jesus. He flees from it across the Jordan to remove himself out of the reach, out of the threat of the Jerusalem authorities. And it's during his stay there that the text tells us a man named Lazarus was sick. Now, this is a special story in lots of ways, but Lazarus is the only recipient of a miracle who is named in this gospel. He's the only miracle recipient whose first name we know. A man named Lazarus was sick. His sisters, of course, are Mary and Martha, the same Mary who poured perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped it, John tells us, with her hair. Now, John's going to actually narrate that next in chapter 12, but it probably happened before this event. Lord willing, we'll look at that text next week. So you have this family. They're from Bethany. Bethany is about two miles east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olivet. The Mount of Olives, or also known as Olivet, on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. But if you get over the top of the mountain, you look down, you see Jerusalem. So it's very close. But the sisters send word across the Jordan to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. Now clearly, as we shall see, Jesus is very close to this family. Yes, it's true, Jesus loves all people, but he has deep and unique and special bonds with a few. With a few. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus are among Jesus' small, intimate, inner circle. So Jesus has friendships, human friends. He doesn't just have ministry relationships, he has friendships. And this is crucial. He hangs out with these people. This is a place he went to rest. These are people with whom he relaxes. And our Lord forms these sorts of bonds. This is a crucial part of a rich and full human life. A small circle of close friends. Even among the disciples, Jesus had three he was closer with. But this family, he has a unique bond with. There was a survey that I saw recently which said that in 1980, the average American adult had three close friends. Today, the number is something like 0.8, they think. There's a lot of lonely, friendless adults out there. And it is part of our Lord's human perfection. And, and no small part of it, by the way. Right, that he forms these types of bonds. 
right? If the only kinds of relationships we have with people are transactional relationships or public relationships, then something is fundamentally diminished in our humanity. Jesus did not live like that. So close, so close are the hearts and minds here that the sisters, they don't even explicitly ask Jesus to come. You'll notice the request is just this. Lord, the one you love is sick. That's it. Technically, they don't even ask Jesus to do anything. Of course, it's implied. The one you love, everybody will know who we're talking about. The one you love. So the friendship led to love. And love strengthened the friendship. You know, even the end of Jesus' ministry to us, right? The end of his ministry, in the upper room discourse with the disciples, he says, I no longer call you servants. Now I call you friends. Right? Abraham, friend of God. Jesus wants you to be his friends. You're to be friends with the triune God. And so the sisters send this word out, the one you love is sick. And Jesus responds by saying... This sickness will not end, meaning it won't terminate in death, but so God's glory and the glory of God's Son can be seen. Now, this is a simple point, but this is the nub of John's gospel. Why did John write this gospel, and what's he trying to do? He's trying to get you and I to see the glory of God in the Son, the radiance or the splendor of God, the Father, in his self-disclosure in Jesus. And that's what this miracle is about. It's very, very simple. John is trying by the Holy Spirit to get you and I to see the glory of Christ, the splendor of Christ. And this sign will be the last sign that Jesus performs in this book. Remember we said earlier that Scholars divide the Gospel of John into two halves. The front half, chapters 1 through 11, is often called the Book of Signs. Jesus does a series of miracles in it. The back half, beginning in chapter 12, the Book of Glory. So this sign is going to directly lead. It's going to show God's glory, but it's going to lead into the Book of Glory where we see the glory of God in Christ more fully displayed in His cross, in His death, and His subsequent exaltation. So Jesus says this sign is so that you can see who God is and who I am. And then something kind of unpredictable and strange happens next in the text. We're told that Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Again, you see the special bond, right? We are not told that Jesus loved everybody equally. Parents say that about their kids, you know. They're lying. But, uh, but um, well, the point is, Jesus has special bonds. Jesus loves everybody, but he loves Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, we're told that, right? And then, counterintuitively, we're told that he stays where he is for two more days. I mean, you can't quite be sure why Jesus delays here, but the reference to his love for the family surely means it's not indifference, right? It's not callousness. But we, we already know, right, if we're, we're following John's gospel, we know Jesus moves and acts and speaks on some sort of different 
timetable. He only does what he sees the Father doing when he sees the Father doing it. But imagine, imagine the distress that this delay would have caused Mary and Martha as they stood there watching their brother's life ebb away. In any event, after two long days, Jesus finally turns to the disciples and he says, let's go back to Judea. And they're astonished. They're like, wait, they were trying to stone you there and you want to go back? You know, not only is this a miracle, this is an act of defiance and courage by Jesus. Right? He's going right into the place where he was just hunted to do this miracle. And the only reason he doesn't get arrested here is because he ends up attracting a really big crowd. So he uses this metaphor about Lazarus falling asleep, which the disciples have a hard time picking up on. And then, you know, we don't know, but somehow, probably supernaturally, Jesus knows Lazarus has died. And in verse 14, plainly, he tells the disciples, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, he says, I'm glad I wasn't there. So that you might believe. Let us go to him. So that's the death. Second comfort. Jesus arrives at Bethany. Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. It's interesting. Later, not a lot later, but a little later than the New Testament. Rabbis would hold that the soul of a dead person would hover over the body. And for three days, and then leave on the fourth day. Once the soul saw signs of decomposition in the body. And that could be in the background here. We're in the middle now, because we're on the fourth day, of this prolonged Jewish ritual of mourning. And Mary and Martha have been joined by many Jews. Martha heard that Jesus was coming, so someone must have scouted him out. I mean, she must have been looking for him every hour. Can you imagine? Maybe every few minutes. She goes out to meet him. She doesn't even wait. She runs after him. And in verse 21, you get really an expression of faith. It's not a complaint. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he'll do it for you. Jesus replies, And and this reply is, I think, designed to maybe draw Martha's faith out a little bit more. He really replies with something quite conventional, Jesus does. A conventional piece of Jewish hope. Your brother will rise again. I mean, the Sadducees didn't believe this. But Mary and Martha and Jesus did. And she says, Martha says, I know he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. It's like she's saying, that's fine, Lord, I believe that. But we're hurting right now. My brother is dead. And we're grieving. Yeah, I I know he's going to be raised on the last day. And so Jesus is going to move her from the not yet to the right now. He's going to move her from from the already into the present. And that's what he's about here. He says, I am. I'm here, and I am the resurrection. And I am the life. We've already seen. He says, I have life in myself. 
from the living Father. I am the one who by that life raises the dead. I am, Martha, the personal fulfillment of Jewish eschatological future kingdom eternal hope. And because I live, you will live. And he says to her, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. Right? That is, even though they die, they'll be raised from the dead on the last day. We don't just believe, I know we've said this many times, but I want to say it again. We don't just believe in dying and going to heaven. One scholar put it, the Christian faith is life after, life after death. Right? We believe in life after Life after death. We believe in the bodily resurrection. But also, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. That is, they have resurrection life even now. And thus are delivered from the sting of death. If you trust in Jesus and you follow him, you will not only be raised on the last day, you can have resurrection life now. And in that sense, never die. Those are the two great realities that are locked together in believing the gospel. What's about to happen in this text to Lazarus is a sign or a parable of that. That reality. I raise the dead, Jesus says. That life-giving power is about to break into this scene. Do you believe this? Notice that in the text. That's what he asked Mary and Martha. I mean, they're believers. They're disciples of Jesus. But we ought to ask ourselves that. Right? We get so busy with Christian stuff. Like it comes down to this. Do you believe Jesus empties the cemeteries? Do you believe in the resurrection of the body from the dead on the last day? And he asked them that. And this is not an abstract question. Do you believe this? Is essentially, do you believe in me, not just as a great teacher, but as the resurrection and the life? A Jesus who does not empty the cemeteries is of no good to us. So, Martha responds to the question. She makes a perfectly good confession of faith. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. I mean, that's pretty good. That puts her, that puts her right at the head of the class for the people Jesus is hanging around with in John's Gospel. In fact, John tells us in chapter 20, at the very end of the gospel, he says, I wrote this gospel so that you might believe, and Martha has almost this exact same language, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Right? And that by believing you might have life in his name. Martha almost matches that confession, but she seems to not have fully grasped the having life in his name part. In other words, what's missing from Martha's confession is the connection between her confession and her brother's condition. So it's formally fine. Her confession is formally fine. But you know what's wrong with it? It's falling short of something like resurrection faith. So she's out there with Jesus. She goes back to the house. She gets Mary. Mary's never in a hurry. Martha's the one who runs. She goes back and gets Mary. And then Mary comes and does what she always does. She falls at Jesus' feet. And she says the exact same thing as Martha. Word for word. Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
One can easily imagine that this gets repeated for us in this story because these distraught sisters were saying that to themselves for every hour for the last two days. If only the Lord had been here. If only the Lord had been here, Lazarus would not have died. That's the first thing they say when they get to him. So Jesus sees her. He sees all these mourners weeping. And you get one of the strongest statements in the New Testament about Jesus' deep and rich emotional life. It says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And the words imply more than that. He was agitated. Or even he shook. The words imply outrage, indignation, even anger at the situation. Jesus is outraged at death. He has come to abolish it because it's a thief and it's an enemy and it's a grotesque perversion of God's creation. He hasn't naturalized it. He hasn't said, well, you know, all things must pass. You know, it's just a natural process. He hates it. He does not accept it. He does not come to terms with it. Funerals are his enemy. And he's going to destroy it. But he's fully man, and so he feels its agony. He's brokenhearted and angry at the face of this, even though he knows exactly what he's about to do. He doesn't say, hey, I got this. I got this. Enough of the tears. Man up. He's going to express the same emotion in almost the same language when he faces his own death. He is no stoic, Jesus. He sees no virtue in some stiff upper lip. He feels the loss of Lazarus, even though he's the resurrection and the life. And then verse 35, the famous shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus weeps with those who weep. And he mourns with those who mourn. That's what Paul later will command the church to do. And that's what our Lord did. I've heard people, I've heard men on this text say, well, yeah, I'm not much of a crier. I'm like, well, you're going to have to take that up with God because you're commanded to cry. You're actually commanded to cry. (laughs) You're commanded to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. God commands our emotional life. He doesn't say, you know, your emotional life is off limits. I'm, of course, not going to command that. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, I would guess 50% of the commands are commands of your emotional life. Rejoice, be happy, you know, grieve with those who grieve, weep, mourn. God is constantly commanding our emotional life. And he does it here by, by example in Jesus. And there's no doubt about the cause of Jesus' tears. The Jews, seeing him weeping, they say, see how he loved him. It's the bond. The deeper the love, the deeper the vulnerability to this kind of wound. You know, some people don't cry because they don't form deep bonds. Right? The deeper the friendship, the deeper the grief. So Jesus' presence and his tears and his agitation and anger 
That's the comfort. And finally, there's the resurrection. And here I'll be brief because the story is well known. Lazarus comes, I mean, Jesus comes to the tomb. And, and by the way, notice this in the text. It says, for the second time in the text, he was deeply moved again. Same language. And then Martha reminds him, Lord, Martha's very practical. She's like, Lord, it might smell. They didn't have, very, there's no good diffusers in that day. It says, he's been in there for four days, Lord. It might be a bad owner, a bad odor. And Jesus reminds her of what he said. He says, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. Right? They remove the stone. Now, it's been two days, right? This is a long time coming. They remove the stone, and Jesus furthers the suspense by stopping. And I wouldn't say exactly that he prays. He addresses his father. I suppose we could say that's a prayer. He says, I thank you that you have heard me. I mean, there's no record of a petition. But we know that Jesus was constant in prayer, that he lived his life in unbroken communion with the Father. In that sense, his life is prayer. But I know, Jesus continues, that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people here, that they might believe. Jesus is saying, look, I don't need to verbalize this, Father. But I'm going to do it for us. I'm going to do it for them, for my disciples, for the people gathered around. So they'll see the sign as revealing the glory that it's supposed to reveal. He calls out in that loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He comes out wrapped in linen cloths. The key thing here is the voice of Jesus, right? John tells us in chapter 5, this is the voice which raises you out of spiritual death. It's the voice that the dead will hear in the tombs later and come forth to resurrection life. This is a sign of that. This is a sign of that, but it's not yet that event. Let's be clear here. It is not that event. Lazarus is raised, but you know what? He's raised mortal, not immortal. He's raised corruptible, not incorruptible. Poor guy's going to die again. He's going to die again. Lazarus is dead today. And he will, with all the dead, await the loud voice of Jesus when he appears at the end of the age. So it's a familiar story. I want to make three points from it here. I'm going to call them quick, uh, quick points here at the end. Glory, delay, and faith. Three, three things we can take from this story. So first, glory. It's, it's difficult for us to grasp, I think, or, or wrap our minds around. But we see here, in this text, more clearly than in many places, the full divinity and the full humanity of Jesus. Notice that. We see them side by side, and there's no sense of conflict between them. He knows from the very beginning of the story the first thing Jesus says in the text is, this sickness will not end in death. He knows from the beginning. He knows he's going to go and wake Lazarus up. He tells his disciples that before they start the two-day journey. He knows he is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't even need to verbalize a petition to his father about what he will do. The outcome is never in doubt Because this is God, the Son. And yet, this one has an intimate circle of deep human friendship. 
and he loves, and he weeps, and he mourns, and he's agitated, outraged, deeply moved twice in the text. Now, we need just this kind of Savior. This is why the church has always proclaimed the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ. A purely human Jesus cannot raise the dead, cannot be the life-giving resurrection in his own person. And a purely divine Jesus will not weep with you and love you as one of his friends. You know, the, the, the miracle, this text is not about Lazarus. Jesus tells us at the beginning, it's about the glory of God revealed in the Son. Right? The Lazarus thing is like a sign or a sacrament that points to the thing. Right? The bread and wine point us to the risen Christ's body and blood. This miracle points us to Jesus as the resurrection and the life. So, the Lord is saying here, behold, see. And rejoice in the glory, the luminosity, that's disclosed in this text. The glory of the Son of God, fully human, fully divine. Tender to sympathize, mighty to save. That's what we have in Jesus. The tender human sympathy of a friend and the mighty saving power to raise us out of death. The second thing is I want to come back to the delay. The two days that Jesus waits before heading back to Bethany, in which time Lazarus dies. Now we know from the way the text is worded that the delay is not in conflict with Jesus' love for the family. Yet I want you to see this. What would that delay look like to Mary and Martha? I mean, it would surely have the appearance, as their brother is dying, of not caring. You sent word. You appealed to Jesus, your friend. You told him the one that he loves is sick. And and, and hour by hour by hour by hour, he doesn't show up. He hasn't even left the other side of the Jordan until two days have gone by. Then he has to walk back to Bethany. That's why it's the fourth day when he gets to the tomb. I mean, it looks like he doesn't care or that he's unloving. In fact, from where they sit, the circumstances seem to admit of no other understanding. I mean, what else could it possibly be? Right? Often we find ourselves in life in situations like this, I think, where to all appearances, we're in the same situation as the sisters. We feel as they would have felt. Where is God when our loved one died? When we waited right? and we prayed and he did not show up. Where was he? Where is he? What was he doing when this or that heart-wrenching reality fell upon us? Why the delay? I thought he loved us. I thought we were friends. 
I mean, can you imagine those two days for those sisters? We know the outcome of the story. I think we just glide right past this. Christians live in exactly that time of delay. In this age, when we find that we and our loved ones suffer and die. And when we wait for Jesus to come and disclose his glory and raise them and us from the dead. And when we wonder why he seems to be taking his time. Right? In that delay where the church, including the Old Testament saints, have cried out, How long, O Lord, how long? You know, that's not, a, that's not a surface cry of the church through the millennia. That's a cry from the depths. Out of the depths, O Lord, I cry unto you. Right? One of the deepest petitions in the pulsing heart of the church of Jesus Christ is just that. How long, O Lord, how long? We're waiting. We're waiting. And so in that delay... It's crucial. This story teaches us something about the delay. It teaches us that Jesus' love for us has not faltered. Right? There was no wavering of his love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. His solidarity with you, his sympathy for his people, has not been broken, even if it looks like there is no other explanation than that. It isn't broken. And his anger and his outrage at our disordered situation and our broken lives has not abated. And his desire to heal has not lessened. If only someone could have told Mary and Martha on the first day. Well, you've been told. You're like Mary and Martha. You've been told why there's a delay. And... While the bodily resurrection awaits, we have that word, that personal presence, that already quickening life of resurrection now. So it's important for us then to lay hold of him as our merciful and our sympathetic high priest who in that beautiful phrase of the King James Bible is touched. Touched with the feeling of our infirmities. So, that brings me to the last point, which is faith. Faith for us is always, and at every point, not simply correct confession. Though, of course, it is. It's important. Faith has content. We want to get it correct. But it's faith in the one who is the resurrection. Right. Faith in God who raises the dead. We, have, we either have Abrahamic faith, beloved, or we don't believe. Life will force you into this situation one way or the other. Right? And then you'll be reminded, oh, I am either going to have the faith of Abraham here, or I am not going to be a Christian. Life has a way of putting you up against a wall or forcing you into a corner. Right? So we have faith in the one who empties the cemeteries, or it is of no value to us. Right? This sort of faith is in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. As the one who gives us resurrection life now. So that we who believe will never die. Right? This assures us. 
that even when we do die, we shall nevertheless live. And so, I ask you what Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you do, though you wait, though you are perplexed, though you suffer, though God delays, though it seems like he doesn't love you or care, if you do, you shall see the glory of God. Amen.